Living under a king is a foreign concept to most Americans. Most of us have never lived in a place where the government is ruled by a true monarchy. But history is full of examples of countries and states being ruled by an absolute monarchy. Today, the country of France is ruled by a semi-presidential system, but it wasn't always that way. The longest reigning monarch in France's history is the famous Louis XIV. What do we know about Louis XIV? Well, he ascended to the throne when he was five years old and ruled until he was a few days shy of his 77th birthday. So after 72 years on the throne, France finally got a new king. He's the longest reigning monarch in, in European history. He loved wealth. He built the very famous Palace of Versailles. A few years ago, Anouk and I visited France, and we took a tour of Versailles. It was breathtaking. It said at one time there were 40,000 workers working on this palace at one time. It's an amazing uh, structure, amazing construction project. He loved power. Um, one article I was reading said this, After the death of Cardinal Marzin, Mazarin, excuse me, in 1661, Louis resumed his power over France. After Mazarin's death in 1661, Louis XIV broke with tradition and astonished his court by declaring that he would rule without a chief minister. His exact words were this, Up to this moment, I have been pleased to entrust the government of my affairs to the late cardinal. It is now time that I govern them myself. You, he was talking to the secretaries and ministers of the state, you will assist me with your counsels when I ask for them. I request and order you to seal no orders except by my command. I order you not to sign anything, not even a passport, without my command, to render account to me personally each day and to favor no one. He liked his power. From the time Louis XIV was born, the people of France knew that he would be the next king. His mother had experienced four stillbirths before Louis XIV was born. Because of this, people saw him as a divine gift and his birth as a miracle. The kingship of Jesus Christ is much different than the kingship of Louis XIV. When Jesus was five years old, no one in his village was looking to make him a king. But later on, people would attempt to make him a king. He would definitely avoid their throne. It wasn't that Jesus refused to be king. It's simply that it was not the right time and the kingdom was too small that they were offering Jesus' refusal to be king began to change on Palm Sunday many years ago. Prior to this, Jesus had recently raised Lazarus from the dead. You can read about that in the Gospel of, of John in chapter 11. The crowds following him were getting larger by the hour. The Galileans who were traveling to Jerusalem with Jesus during this holy week and his disciples, they were traveling with Jesus and his disciples, they were full of nationalistic pride. A man from their country was raising people from the dead. A man from their country, the Galileans, was going to be king and overthrow the Roman rule. Or at least, that's what they thought. What most of the crowd did not realize was that Jesus had made careful preparations for his entry into Jerusalem. He rode a donkey the last mile or two into the city. He had traveled almost 100 miles, but the last mile or two, he had, he, he, the, the 100 miles he traveled on foot, and the last mile or two he traveled by donkey. Why? There was definite purpose to this, this choice. This trip into the city of David was, begin, was the beginning of Jesus unwrapping the veil that had hid his messiahship, his kingship, for over 30 years. And as D.A. Carson noted, 
secrecy was being lifted. So let's take a few minutes this morning and look at what type of king King Jesus was and is today. We have three simple points this morning, the first of which is this. Jesus is an approaching king. Jesus is an approaching king. Our focus is going to be in verse 5 this morning. This took place to fulfill what Jesus commanded the disciples to do, the getting the donkey and his coming into Jerusalem, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. What prophet is it? That's Zechariah. In Zechariah 9.9, if you're taking notes, write down Zechariah 9.9. This is the quotation from there. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of the beast of burden. Jesus' first coming was prophesied by Zechariah in Zechariah 9.9. Before the first advent, the world was waiting for the Messiah to appear. The Jews were looking forward to the day when the Messiah would break through the curtain of history to deliver them to their enemies. His coming was prophesied. The Jews of Jesus' day looked back to Zechariah 9 and the other Old Testament prophetic passages with hope and anticipation. They knew they needed deliverance and restoration. In their minds, the the, the deliverance and restoration primarily had to do with land and autonomy. The journey into Jerusalem here that we're reading about was a wonderfully chaotic event. Jesus played his role in the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy perfectly. And the crowds, they fulfilled their role, even though they didn't know it, in the prophecy of Zechariah perfectly as well. Because of what they had seen Jesus do in rising or raising Lazarus from the dead, the crowds grew stronger and stronger. They took off their coats and they, put, and they cut down branches and threw them in the path of Jesus to show their appreciation and recognition of Jesus being king. They recognized him as a king. The Galileans were particularly proud of the fact that he was a Galilean. This was a Galilean crowd here. You need to understand this. And so later on, when we see the crowds chanting, crucify him, crucify him, it's really a different crowd. That's the Jerusalem crowd. There probably was some intermixing of the crowds at this point. But here, this is the Galilean crowd. And they were so proud that their person, the person from their city, was going to be the king, or so they thought. He was one of them. The savor of the world was of their heritage, of their blood. Their salvation would come through the hands of a man who grew up in their hometown. And so we see here in verse 5 this prophecy that Jesus is an approaching king. They were waiting for him. But just like the Galileans were waiting for Jesus to come, so, uh, is, so are the modern-day Christians waiting for Jesus to come. And our king is an approaching king. He's still approaching. We are waiting for the day when Jesus will come back. There is a day, there will be a day, when Jesus returns back for, for his people. And he will set all things right. And he will fully restore. And he will complete what he began to do. And so Jesus' second coming is prophesied in several passages of Scripture, and one of those is Revelation 19.11. And we won't go there, but you can write that down. Revelation 19.11 talks about when Jesus Christ will come back. And so today, we continue to wait for our Messiah. Our Savior is one of us, just like the Galileans. We're so proud that their king was, was one of their people. Our Savior is one of us. He became man to save us. He is one of us and he is approaching, he is coming back. He came, he lived a perfect life and died an unjust death. He rose from the dead, thereby conquering sin and death. The restoration of the cosmos has been set in motion. We are waiting for the day when this cosmic restoration plan is complete. 
And so this should consume us. Our minds should be consumed with the approaching, the reality of the approaching Jesus Christ. Our King is coming back for us. And we need to be thinking about this. We need to be praying for this. We need to have the prayer of the Apostle John on our lips at all times. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. But I fear that often we neglect this important point that our King is an approaching King and that He is coming back for us. It has great practical advantage for our minds to be consumed with the appearing of Jesus. So let me just note three of these very quickly. They're not on the screen, but um, this is the advantage of being consumed with the appearing of Jesus. Number one, being consumed with the appearing of Jesus diminishes our attachment to the world. If we're consumed with Jesus Christ coming back and we're, our minds are set on that, it diminishes our attachment to the world. We are constantly, we, when we constantly remember that Jesus is on his way back, we begin to realize that our time on this earth is short. We realize that promotions, wealth, vacations, status, reputations, and hobbies that we doggedly pursue have very little value when it's in light of the fact that the King of Kings is returning for us one day. Why should we spend all of our time on earth accumulating stuff when the king who owns everything is coming with our inheritance? Why should we spend our time on earth worried about what people think of us when the king of the cosmos is coming back for us specifically? You can't get a better sense of affirmation than that, than the king of the cosmos is coming back. Why should we spend all of our time on earth seeking promotion when the king is coming to give you a promotion that no man can ever give you? Remember the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus? The chorus says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And so as we focus on the fact that our king is coming back and he's just like here in, 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 in verse 5 of our text where there was the, the sense that their king was approaching and they were waiting for him and that should have shaped their everyday life. So the fact that our king is approaching and our king, king is coming back for us, so that should cause our attachments to this world to be very diminished. Number two, being consumed with the appearing of Jesus endears our hearts to Jesus. It helps us remember that he's a real person. We are people of a book. Sometimes we read about stories in the Bible and have to remind ourselves that it is real. There's some fascinating stories in this book. The Red Sea really did part. A giant really was killed by a boy with a slingshot. A fish really did swallow a man and then spit him out. Jesus really did walk on this earth and perform miracles. Jesus breathed oxygen like you and I breathe oxygen. Jesus' heart pumped blood throughout his body. When the crown of thorns pierced his body, blood came out. When the soldier's spear punctured his side, blood and water really did come out. When the spikes were driven into his hands and feet, blood really did come out. Jesus did get tired from walking. It felt good to Jesus to sit down. We read about that in John chapter 4. Jesus, being wearied from his journey, sat down at the well. Jesus is a real person. Jesus left earth after his resurrection to complete the next phase in God's cosmic plan, preparing dwelling places and the coming of the Holy Spirit. His ascension was a real historical event. There was a day when people were, were talking with him and he started to levitate. 
His levitation took him higher and higher until those men could no longer see him. This same real Jesus is approaching. He's coming back for you. He's coming back for his people. If you're a follower of Jesus, he is coming back for you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, please become one today. This real person is worthy of our love, our respect, our admiration. He will return for his followers soon. Be counted among them. So when we see and we remember that Jesus is an approaching king, it helps us remember that he's real and that he is worthy of our faith and respect. And thirdly, being consumed with the appearing of Jesus fills our heart with hope. We long for the day when sin's effects are eradicated and we no longer have the painful reminders of sin all around us. There'll be nothing unclean in us. I look forward to that day. We will finally live without any sinful thoughts, selfish motives, or wrong actions. The fall defiled man's capacity for righteousness as he became a slave to sin. From that point on, even his good choices were tainted with sin. When Jesus comes back, we will no longer have to worry about selfishness in our hearts or about living a distracted life. The allure of sin and temptations that plague us each and every day will be completely annihilated when Jesus comes back. For the first time, we will know what it's like to serve God from a pure heart, from a heart that is not divided, and from a heart that is 100% in love with Jesus. He is approaching. He is coming back. And this gives us hope. Because one day, we will no longer struggle as we struggle today. And our minds should be consumed with this, and we should look forward to this, and it will, bring, it will bring great hope. Not only will there be nothing unclean within us, there will be nothing unclean around us. Think about how this world will be different when Jesus comes back. There will be no funeral homes. There will be no hospitals, no abortion clinics, no divorce courts, no brothels, no bankruptcy courts, no psychiatric wards, and no treatment centers. There'll be no pornography, no teen suicide, no cancer, no rape, no missing children, no drug abuse, no drive-by shootings, no racial tension, and no prejudice. There'll be no misunderstandings, no injustice, no depression, no hurtful words, no gossip, no hurt feelings, no worry, no emptiness, and no child abuse. There'll be no wars, no financial worries, no emotional heartaches, no physical pain, no spiritual flatness, no relational divisions, no murders, and no tears. There will be no suffering, no separations, no starvation, no arguments, no accidents, no emergency rooms, no doctors, no nurses, no heart monitors, no rust, no false teachers, no financial shortages, no hurricanes, no bad habits, no decay, and no locks. Our Messiah is approaching. Just like he came to Jerusalem to fulfill the plan of the Father, Jesus is coming back to complete the Father's plan. We look forward to that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, like, Titus, like Paul wrote to Titus. So on this Palm Sunday, as we think back on the important day of when in great symbolism and in careful execution of his plan, Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem, let us look to Jesus and see him approaching. Let us earnestly desire his second coming. May it guide our thoughts and may it guide our actions. Our king is an approaching king. Let us look forward to that day. May it consume our minds. Not only is our king, is Jesus an approaching king, but secondly, Jesus is a humble king. We see this in verse 5 again. It says, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. And a lot of times people, and I'm going to talk about this in a few minutes, they, they look to the idea that he was riding on a donkey as an expression of his humility. And that is part of the equation. 
But really, it'd be kind of redundant if he says he's humble and mounted on a donkey. And so I believe that there's actually a, a, a different emphasis with the donkey that we will get to in just a minute. But here it's very explicit in this prophecy that our king who is approaching would be a very humble king. And indeed, Jesus was a humble king. First, his heritage shows that he is a humble king. Jesus was from Nazareth. Whenever you read that in the Scriptures, don't skip over that. Remember, every word is there for a reason. When it says Jesus of Nazareth, there's a reason why that's included. And here's what I want our minds to go to every time we read that, is the fact that he is a humble king. He was from Nazareth of Galilee. Remember what Nathaniel said? Can anything good come from Nazareth? It's like saying, can anything good come from Rockford? The Galileans were not very well received in Jerusalem. Their sloppy language and lax observation of the rituals, the Jewish rituals, made Galileans the butt of Judean humor. The Galileans were essentially a foreigner in Jerusalem. We understand the tension there. We understand that there was great difference. The way that Galileans spoke, they, they spoke with an accent. And when, when, when they were in Jerusalem, everyone knew you were a Galilean by the way you pronounced your words or or the, the slang that you used. It'd be much like someone who has a deep accent from the South who lives up here now. Everyone knows, you're not from around here, are you? Because of the accent. Well, the Galileans here had an accent. And because they were different, they were looked down upon by the people of Jerusalem. And this is where Jesus was from. As the only person ever born who could have chosen his place of birth and his people group, Jesus chose a stable and the Galileans. And here, as he's approaching Jerusalem at the beginning of this Holy Week, Jesus rides a donkey. Part of the prophecy was that Jesus would be humble. His heritage indeed shows that he is a humble king. And the fact that the Galileans were so looked down upon is the reason why this Galilean crowd here, it was so proud of the fact that it was Jesus. Later on, when the, this, when the people of Jerusalem asked the crowds who had traveled into the city, the Galilean crowd with, Jerusalem, with Jesus into Jerusalem, they say, who is this? They said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. They wanted everyone to know that he was one of them because they were used to being ridiculed. They were used to being the butt of the jokes. Jesus was showing by his heritage his humility. The humility of Jesus is what caused so many problems for the Jews. They expected their king to be a conquering king. He was to have the personality of a bull in a china shop. He was to be larger than life and one who stood head and shoulders above the rest. Like their ancestors, they were looking for King Saul attributes, not King David attributes. His heritage shows that he's a humble king. But Jesus' disposition shows that he is a humble king. Part of the Palm Sunday narrative that we often forget, that is often missed, is how Jesus entered the city. We focus on the crowds. We focus on the fact that as Jesus entered the city, people were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Basically, what, originally what that phrase meant was, God save us. And later on, it became probably during the time of Jesus' day, it, began, it became more of just a simple uh, announcement of, of recognition of, of God or of the Messiah. And so they were clearly seeing him as this here. And that's what we focus on. We focus on how when Jesus came in, it's called the triumphal entry. 
It's called the victorious entry when Jesus came in to the city of David. To all the cheers. And to the branches being cut down and thrown in his path and coats being taken off. But one thing we miss is that Jesus approached the city with tears in his eyes. In Luke chapter 19, it says this in verse 41. After he was entering into the city or he was getting there, the Pharisees started telling him, started telling Jesus, hey, Tell your people to pipe down. Now, why were they saying that? It was because they recognized that what they were saying was messianic. They were saying, your your disciples are calling you the Messiah. You need to shut them up. You need to tell them to stop. And Jesus' famous response is, if I tell them to stop, these stones are going to cry out. But what do we find out about Jesus after? In verse 41 of Luke 19, it says this, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Jesus' humility is on display in his disposition. He didn't come in saying, finally, I'm going to get what is my, well, I'm going to get what I deserve. No. He came in with tears in his eyes and streaming down his face because he knew the week that was ahead of him. He knew the most difficult week of his life was ahead of him. And he knew that at the end of this week, the Father would turn his back on him and that he would bear the weight of the world's sin, the sin of his people on his shoulders, and he would bear that. And he knew that the people did not understand. He knew that the city of Jerusalem did not understand what was about to happen. And so he wept over it. He showed his humility. Jesus deeply cares for his people. We need to understand that. We need to see that in this story here. Now the importance of this is this. Most people truly appreciate when they see humility on display in someone else's life. Why is it that lies of humility are so appreciated? I think it's because we all know how hard it is to be humble. Most of us don't have anything worth bragging about, but that doesn't stop us from being proud. I remember hearing a story about someone who talked to a mentor of his, and he said, you know, I, I just, you know, can you help me with pride here? Can, can you, I, I, just, I just need you to, to how, how can I overcome pride in my life? And his mentor looked at him very wisely and said, what do you have to be proud about? <laughs> Putting him in his place. From the junior high boy who thinks he's destined to play in the NBA to a mother who longs for people to affirm her mothering skills through compliments of her children, we all struggle with pride. Humility is hard. So when we see humility in other people, we internally tip our hat to them, recognizing they have done something we all know is good, but very difficult. Jesus' humility is very helpful to us. I find two reasons very quickly why this is helpful to us. Number one, Jesus' humility erases our constant insistence of our rights. We are commanded to be humble because it's not natural for us. When we, we, when we struggle with pride, we need to look to Jesus and we need to say this. I've written out a prayer that I think is helpful. Jesus, you gave up so much to come to earth. You were entitled to the worship of every human before you came to earth. If for no other reason your creation of the world demands that every human should worship you. But you did not insist that every human immediately recognize your glory and intrinsic worth. 
Rather, you voluntarily set aside some of your attributes for the benefit of creation. Instead of, instead of insisting that every knee immediately bend and every tongue immediately confess that you are Lord, you recognize the cancer that caused stiff knees and mute tongues. Jesus, that cancer is sin. So instead of simply internally, eternally damning humans for the sinfulness, you became a man. You gave up your rights. You lived a perfect life and died an unjust death. For me, thank you for your humility. You realize that if Jesus was not a humble king as we see here, then the whole story of God's redemptive plan would be changed. Insisting on our rights becomes much more difficult when we consider the humility of our king. In fact, we begin to recognize that we have no rights and, and all that we have are gracious gifts from our humble king. And so instead of always insisting on what is rightfully ours and what we should get, when we recognize our humble king, when we see our humble king, we can not be so bound to insist on our rights. Secondly, it erases the need for praise. Jesus came for the benefit of the world and he was killed. Before his death, he was mocked and marginalized. He experienced great crowds following him and then leaving him. He worked for the glory of the Father. Unfortunately, we crave the praise of men. The need of affirmation and praise plays too large of a role in our lives. It's a question of identity. We want to be known as a good father or mother. We want to be known as a good leader or worker. We need to be known as a rising star. We want to be known by our classmates and teachers. We want to be appreciated for all that we do. We long for people to go out of their way and show appreciation for what we've done. We like people to make a big deal out of our accomplishments. Even the most introverted of us longs for some sort of affirmation in relation to his or her identity. In short, we want people to be in awe of us. It could be our education, our body image, our musical talent, or our athleticism. It could be our accomplishments, our leadership qualities, or our oratory skills, or our political savviness. It could be our critical thinking, or our reasoning skills, or our parenting abilities. It could be our work ethic, our decision-making abilities, or our knowledge of the scriptures. Jesus' humility shatters all of that for us. When we have a king who is content to live this life in humility and who sought the approval of one, we should have no other aspirations than to be like our king. And this Palm Sunday, let us worship our approaching king and our humble king. And finally, Jesus is a peaceful king. He's a peaceful king. This is where the donkey comes in. Jesus' transportation illustrates his peacefulness here. I'm not going to get into the fact where there are some people that question about the fact that there are two donkeys mentioned here and some people in, in attempts to, to, make a, uh, to ridicule this text. They, they say Matthew was absurd because he makes it sound like Jesus was riding on two donkeys at the same time, and that's just uh, ridiculous. When it says in verse 7 that he sat on them, it's not talking about the donkeys, it's talking about the coats. But if you ever hear him say that, you can just tell them that they are being, they're showing folderol. What is the word? Folderol? Folderol? It's nonsense. I told you I'd work it into a sermon somehow. So there it is. It'll be on my mind if I didn't do it. I'd never heard that word before. And obviously I still didn't know it because I needed help pronouncing it. 
Jesus' transportation illustrates his peacefulness. Jesus' use of a donkey for the last mile or two in the city was intentional. He simply wasn't tired of walking. His disciples didn't need an animal to ride. Most people look to the fact that Jesus rode into donkey and rode a donkey into Jerusalem as only a sign of his humility, and that captures part of the significance. As I understand it, there are three main parts to the symbolism wrapped up in Jesus riding a donkey into Jerusalem. First, it was to fulfill prophecy, the Zechariah 9 prophecy. Second, it was indeed to show his humility. But third, and I think this is the, 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 the emphasis here, is to show his coming in peace. It wasn't unusual for a king to ride a donkey. A donkey In times of war, the king would ride a horse to show his military might. But in times of peace, sometimes a king would ride a donkey to show that these were times of peace. And so his transportation, he, he was coming in and he knew that there would be a conflict and he was coming in showing everyone he was a man of peace and isn't that one of his names? He is the Prince of Peace and he was coming to bring peace. Bring peace, not, not um, uh, political peace necessarily, but he was coming to bring spiritual peace. And again, Jesus' tears illustrate his peacefulness. A few minutes ago, I drew our attention to Luke 19. And so back in Luke 19, let me read the next verse there. After it talks about how Jesus entered into the city with tears. We see why, or a further development, Luke, the doctor, gives us a good insight into why Jesus entered the city with tears. It says this in verse 42. Jesus said, through tears, would that you... Even you had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. He was crying because he knew that he was bringing peace, but he knew that it would not be an easy path. Jesus longs for peace. Jesus will do whatever it takes for peace to reign. Let us not think that because Jesus longs for peace that he is weak and will not fight. For in order to have, for, in order for peace to reign, a battle has to happen. The Galilean crowds wanted Jesus to overthrow Rome, but Jesus came to defeat a much greater enemy than Rome. Jesus came to defeat an enemy that is not contained to a specific time or country. Jesus came to defeat sin and the devil. The path to peace is not an easy path to walk. Jesus knew this, hence the tears in Luke 19. They did not comprehend what Jesus knew to be true of their future. The battle for peace would be painful, the battle for peace would be hard. We don't always see the peace of God in the world around us. But we do see the peace of God in our souls if we are Christ followers. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, he said this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so our souls can understand peace with a heavenly father uh, in a relationship that was damaged by sin. And we can have peace with God because Jesus is a peaceful king. Let us not miss the importance of this. That our souls 
should be at war with the Father because of our sinfulness. Or maybe a better way to put that is the Father should be at war with us because of our sinfulness. But if you sit here today, being a Christ follower, knowing that you can go to God in peace and that God would hear your cry and that you can sit there with your soul at rest in Jesus Christ, understand that that is a privilege and a great byproduct of the gospel and the kingship of Jesus Christ. He brought peace. He's a peaceful king. Our king is a king who longs for peace. He's not a bloodthirsty king. Living in America in 2014, we have a hard time appreciating the significance of this fact. We don't know what it's like to live under uh, uh, absolute monarchies and people who were thirsty, bloodthirsty. But if we were to go back in time and live under Alexander the Great or Napoleon, we would appreciate the fact that our king is not a king of war. He isn't looking to conquer new lands, thereby inflicting pain and hardship on his subjects. He already has won the war. There are battles still to be fought, and one great battle is coming when the king will trade in his donkey for a white horse. And on that day, our king will return to finalize the plan for eternal peace. But the ultimate plan of God is not war. It is peace. We should be thankful for that. Right now, we have a veiled glimpse of what it will be like to live in perpetual peace. The fact that our souls are not in unrest concerning our eternal state shows that Jesus did bring peace. And if your soul has no peace this morning, perhaps it is because that Jesus really is not your king. And may that change today. Jesus entered Jerusalem ready to do what had to be done to bring peace to the world. He rode a donkey to illustrate this important point. He was a king looking to live in the reality of peace on earth, and he was willing to do whatever it took to make that happen, including being rejected by the Father and hanging on a cross and dying an unjust death. He is a peaceful king. Because Jesus is a peaceful king, we should long for peace. We're commanded to pursue peace. We live in a fallen world where conflicts occur far too often. Let us pursue peace, particularly if the conflict is between believers. Part of Jesus' mission on earth is to bring peace. The way believers should live should be a preview of that ultimate peace that will happen when Jesus returns. Because Jesus is a peaceful king, we should thank God for the peace that we have with him because of Jesus. We can pray to God because of the fact that his plan in sending Jesus was to bring peace. Do you realize that if Jesus was not a peaceful king, if he did not bring us peace, we would have no conversation. Prayer would be impossible. We have peace with God because of Jesus. The fact that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey should cause us to remember that Jesus' mission was peace. We should thank God that our souls have, can have peace with God because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So on this Palm Sunday, let us worship our approaching humble, and peaceful king. Earlier I told you that a few years ago, Anouk and I visited the palace of Versailles in France. I told you it is breathtakingly beautiful. It obviously cost an exorbitant amount of money to build. I told you at one time there were 40,000 workers building this home for Louis XIV. What I didn't mention earlier is that historians often point to this construction project as a major contributing factor to the decline of France's economy. 
As a king who was concerned about his image, Louis XIV was willing to sacrifice the well-being of his countrymen. I told you that he loved power. He was not afraid to go to war if it meant expanding his power. He was successful being the longest reigning monarch in France's history. But at the end of his life, four days before his 77th birthday, and after 72 years on the throne, he left a word of advice for his successor, his five-year-old great-grandson. This is what he wrote. Do not follow the bad example which I have set you. I have often undertaken war too lightly and sustained it for vanity. Do not imitate me, but be a peaceful prince. And may you apply yourself principally to the alleviation of the burdens of your subjects. King Jesus doesn't have to leave advice for his successor. There is no successor to our king. Our king doesn't have any regrets for vanity and pride. He's a humble king. Our king doesn't have any regrets for a lack of love towards others. He's a loving king who brings eternal peace to his followers. Instead of saying, do not imitate me, King Jesus says, imitate me. So what is our response? I think it should be like the Galilean crowds. In verse 9 here, it says this, And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, was in a frenzy, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. I believe that our response should be like the Galilean crowds. Because of the proud announcement of Jesus by the Galileans, the city of Jerusalem was shaken. Last week or the week before, I asked Jane to help me with a project, and you can put the map up on the screen now. I asked her to put on the map every person of our membership and regular attenders on this map so we can see where everyone is coming from. There are many communities from which Memorial's membership and regular attenders come from. I don't believe, maybe it's, I don't think Montfront, where the Volnecks live, and the city of Dodgeville, where the Thompsons lives, are on there. I could only fit cities that are east of the Mississippi River um, <laughs> on there. But other than that, other than those two cities, this is where we come from. These are the communities that make up our church. And I would, I would love it. I know God would be pleased if we were like the Galilean crowds in our community saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the whole city of Dodgeville, Verona, Madison, was stirred up saying, who is this? And we say, this is Jesus, our King. How great would it be if Verona, Madison, Fitchburg, Belleville, Stoughton, Oregon, Middleton, Mount Horeb, Blue Mounds, Barnville, Blanchardville, Brooklyn, Evansville, Wanakee, Dodgeville, and Montfort were stirred up because of our proud announcement of Jesus. We have a king worth talking about. He's a humble king. He's an approaching king. He's a peaceful king. We have the table before us. 
In just a minute, I'm going to pray and we're going to observe the Lord's table. But this table reminds us here that Jesus is approaching. We are told to eat this meal together until he comes. It's a reminder that he's approaching. This table reminds us that he is humble. Instead of outlining a five-course meal, Jesus commanded that bread and wine be used as the elements in this meal. Why? These are easily accessible to all people. This table reminds us that Jesus is about peace. The broken body and the shed blood of Jesus was so that we would have eternal peace. So as we go to the table, let us thank Jesus for being the king that he is. Approaching humble, and peaceful. Father, thank you for the plan of salvation. Thank you for this Palm Sunday, this day where we recognize the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. People were shouting his his name and people were stirred into a frenzy because they were proud of who he was. The Galileans were proud that this man, one of their own, had raised people from the dead, but fed thousands of people with very little to work with. Father, we have had you do miraculous things in our own lives. For we are here knowing you as Savior the salvation of our souls, the the redemption of our souls from sin, has that's a miracle far beyond thousands of people eating a meal or Jesus walking on the water. And so we're thankful for who Jesus is. Well, I pray. I pray that we would worship you with worship that is only that, that only you are worthy of receiving. And this Palm Sunday, may we worship our King. It's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.